Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 236th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Maddie Delk and Liam Johnson, who just upped his pledge. Thanks, Liam. We appreciate it. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have director, writer, actor, indie producer extraordinaire Jim Cummings back on the show to talk about his new movie, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is actually a studio film. It should be out by the time this episode hits the internet waves. That's right. You know, we have friends who went to Beyond Fest and saw it there at the drive-in which I think is pretty darn cool, but it is out on VOD so that anyone can go see it wherever you download video on demand. Yeah. If you're a newer listener to our podcast and you're not familiar with Jim Cummings, he is a little bit of like an influencer, right? (laughs) You'd say in this space. Sure, sure. Uh, I like to say cult leader, but whatever (laughs) whatever you want. Yeah, he's, he's famous. He's kind of famous. He made a short called Thunder Road that was quite amazing and uh, won a jury prize i think at sundance and then he made a feature version of it which was also really great i watched it on an airplane which i don't know if i've mentioned this but it's my new favorite way to watch movies <laughs> because it's the only place you're not distracted and it's so good and he's acts in it too and he's really good and he also acts in this new one and this one is more of a mystery thriller with some potentially fantasy elements to it about a werewolf or not a werewolf. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's great because it's been a minute since we've had a chance to catch up with Jim. Then last time we talked to him, it was kind of at the beginning of... We were at the top of the mountain of this snowball that is Jim's career. You know, he's a real juggernaut. He's a real... I tease him about being a cult leader, I think, in the episode. But it's really... You know, he's a, a person who stands up for independent filmmakers' rights. He's a real advocate for what we're doing. And he, I think he's really... He's got some interesting controversial ideas about the way that distribution works and and the way the systems that we have kind of all bought into and believe in and and stand behind and there's a lot of things that need to be revised and he's really on the forefront of talking about that and bringing that up to indie filmmakers so we go in deep on that stuff we don't get to talk enough about his movie because it's been such a long time we just kind of dive in and talk about everything that's happened since sundance to now 
I think the last time we talked to him, his first feature hadn't come out. And now, you know, he's got two more in the bank, it seems like. He's just, he's cranking them out. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that this uh, movie was produced by Natalie Metzger, another past guest, which who had some of the best knowledge drops I think we got recently were in her episode. So if you haven't listened to Natalie Metzger, you should check out her episode. But yeah, my last thing about Jim before we talk about other stuff is that I love how he can work in the studio system and out of the studio system and he can fight passionately for independent filmmakers. And he's a guy that's raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars on crowdfunding platforms. But at the same time, he can work in the industry and outside of the industry. And I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of future filmmakers are going to find a way to do that in a way where they're making their own art, making art for other people and hopefully not getting screwed in the process of it, which has been historically very difficult. That's the main ax that Jim is grinding, basically. It's like how to help filmmakers from being taken advantage of, which is a pretty noble thing. Uh, So it's a great conversation, especially if you care about independent film and want to get fired up about making your own movie. I think this is going to be a good episode for you. Yeah, well, speaking of being taken advantage of, what have you been up to lately? <laughs> well, I haven't I don't think I've been taken advantage of <laughs> recently, but but yeah, man, I am in the middle of a Zoom like a remote shoot that is pretty interesting. You know, this is um our last full day. We've been shooting for 6 days, I think it is. So, you know, it was a real lesson in the nature of remote filmmaking i finally got one in right before i think people are really going back to set so it's a lot of skills we probably won't use much <laughs> yeah I, I don't know you know i have um we'll a see. few friends at some bigger companies that are still doing big remote shoots remote, or yeah. yeah or like sending one crew member yeah i had a general yesterday actually where the company walked through they have a couple different scenarios depending on what the creative is and what the needs of the talent are and how sometimes when you have a movie star on set you kind of just have to be there because otherwise they'll take over which i thought was really <laughs> funny and true you know like of course they would yeah no for sure and i think even when we're there sometimes they take over right and I think there are kind of different levels of how susceptible people are to COVID. So my friend just filmed with Sam Jackson, for instance, and, you know, he's on the older side and they took more, a lot more precautions with going to his house and filming outside and where everyone is and planning it out as opposed to, you know, kind of filming with people that, again, part of it is like how susceptible they are and part of it is how worried they are and I think as directors we know that like one of our main jobs on set whether we're physically there or not is to make the talent the whoever's on camera feel comfortable so that they can be the best version of themselves and be in the moment and not be self-conscious and so a lot of I think COVID you know regardless of how scared of it you are like it doesn't really matter as much as how comfortable you, you know, I, I think my my policy is like whoever is the most worried about COVID on this production should feel comfortable. And if they feel right. comfortable, everyone else will feel comfortable. Right, right, right. So. Yeah. You know, it, it's not something that we've really talked about, but, you know, especially we're both married to actors. Right. And actors are the most vulnerable on set because they have to take their masks off for shots. But a thing that I think about a lot, just in the theoretical sense, but also just in 
in doing this work is that actors tend to be people pleasers a little bit as well. And so part of my job, I think of as a director is to keep an eye out for the safety of people, whether they're crew members or actors or whomever, who maybe don't have the status or authority to speak up sometimes. I think sometimes people get a little nervous. They want to go with the flow. They want to be a team player. Yeah, they want to make waves. They want to get hired again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. They don't want to be difficult. And so as a director, I think you have a lot more latitude to be like, hey, I'm going to speak up for this person on their behalf even though maybe they they feel great, maybe they don't, but here's a thing that I think that we can improve. And that that's always been true, whether it's labor practices or or, you know, sensitivity issues or whatever. Like a director has the most power to kind of voice those issues on behalf of artists. But especially in COVID, I think you kind of have to be thoughtful about that stuff. Yeah. As a director on a set you have a lot of power usually. And part of, I think the responsibility of having that power is really being conscious of who's is feeling comfortable and who's feeling not comfortable on set, whether it's a PA or your star actor or the DP or who. And I think a lot of the social movements and like what you read on Deadline and Me Too and Black Lives Matter, all these things, they're all kind of reminding us that just because we are comfortable and we think everything looks fine doesn't mean that other people, you know, people, right. I don't know if you right. saw, I think we talked about The Assistant, right? That movie. Um, I don't think we did, actually. It's really, really great. And I think it's on Prime or I watch it somewhere for free streaming. But, you know, it's about this idea that this woman is witnessing all this really disgusting, uncomfortable stuff going on in this Hollywood production office. And when she mentions it, people are like, uh, yeah, don't talk about that if you want to keep your job, you know? Right, exactly. And, like, how do we flip that? And I think as directors, we actually are one of the the have the biggest responsibility because we are really setting the tone for who's allowed to speak out. So while I have been guilty of like not hiring people again, because I find them difficult, it's never been because they've expressed concern about safety or comfort or anything. Yeah. It's more that they um, don't laugh at your jokes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, No, even that. I mean, if they do laugh at my jokes, it's kind of a bad sign, but yeah, I also have a shoot this week on Thursday, two days from today, which is the day this episode comes out. And we are shooting at what one Redditor called the Wilhelm scream of music video locations. In that they just mean that you everyone uses it, basically? Yeah, so for yeah, those yeah. of you and that, that don't know... notorious and stands out. Yeah, that's yeah funny. Wilhelm scream is a sound effect of a guy... It sounds like this. Do you want to do your impression? <laughs> that's not bad. No, I'm going to try mine. <laughs> oh, yours is probably way better. That I both... I feel... It's good about both, actually. There is, a, I, I, yeah. There is yeah. a series of Wilhelm screams, but I think there's one that's the iconic one. And there, I think yeah, so maybe it, yours is that one. There's one, only one real Wilhelm scream, and it comes from an old western where the character's name, or maybe the stuntman, was oh, yeah. named Wilhelm. I just watch it. The Charge at Feather River, 1953. <laughs> yeah, and so it just somehow became a a stock. <laughs> scream it's got it's like it's high-pitched yours yours is closer by the way thank you thank you i i feel pretty good about it but yeah (laughs) you know you it's in star wars it's in indiana jones it kind of became like a little bit of a 
an inside joke and meme amongst sound designers that you would sneak in the Wilhelm scream into different yeah into everything you work on yeah yeah exactly so this location anyway, yeah it's so called you're Popsicle sneaking, Studios and you're sneaking this location into everything you work on basically yeah well I hope not it'll probably be my only time there but I would love to recommend it to our listeners because it's insanely affordable I don't know if they are changing prices based on pandemics and whatnot but if you ever saw one of the newer i think or one of the nolan batmans yeah it's the say it's it's the dark knight it's the second one after wayne manor burns down he needs a new bat cave so this is his new bat cave basically. yeah so it, the entire ceiling is made out of light panels and it's a giant grid it's pretty pretty good sized stage it, it's 91 feet by 75 feet but it's only nine feet tall because the entire ceiling is um <laughs> these panels so you can't do like you know, bring a techno crane in there or something, but you can bring a car in there and, you know, cars look great with giant soft lighting overhead. Uh, but you can animate the lighting here too. You can make it strobe. You can make program columns of any light color you want to scroll across the ceiling. And so I'm doing a car thing there with Cadillac. Um, and it's actually a Cadillac Escalade, which I've been doing some research on. And they have this insane feature that sounds crazy to me, but it, it's a the Escalade's a very large car, you know. They have this, they have these microphones in the front seat that if you're talking to your family in the back, even if there's music on, it it funnels some of your audio into the back seat so people can hear you. Even if there's music, it'll mix it. That way, your kids know. <laughs> kind if of they, amazing. If those kids don't shut up, you're gonna turn the Escalade around. Yeah, you know the kids will hear. You'll it. do a That's forty great. point turn to get that thing around. <laughs> Anyway, it's a, just an awesome, weird feature I've never heard of before. But yeah, but we're shooting at this place. You should all check it out. The challenge is always to try to shoot it in a way that doesn't look like every other thing that's ever shot there. And it's taking everything in my power to not just put like a 16 millimeter lens and putting the camera on the ground and just pointing straight at that ceiling, you know, with the car in the foreground, because it's just like some places they cry for these super obvious shots and it's hard to figure out how not to do those the, shots. The ground is cool too. You yeah. know what you should do? I would love to see a, a riff on no ceiling at all mm-hmm. and all reflection. I Yes. So that's one of the pitches I kind of went was kind of like this ex machina like Blade Runner type look where it's all we see is the grid of the ceiling reflected on the car and they're like eh, can we just kind of shoot it like more like how Cadillac would who shoots their stuff. It's like, okay, fine. Try try it anyway. Get it in there. You know, like if you can steal that shot. Yeah, I know. think we will have those shots. But the idea of like not seeing the ceiling, I think is, I, I like that. But I think I it's, mean, the windshield will look really cool. The hood will look really, if you do like a real, like a, like a super wide angle, but you're like super close up on the hood, that could be really cool. Yeah, it almost, I've always wanted to play with, they've got those super wide angle, really thin skinny lenses you know like a t-rex they're ones that you can like close-up stuff for miniature work yeah yeah exactly like it's it's so small it's like if you need to get a shot through a donut hole or something yeah not a snorkel what's it called it there's a a probe probe lens i think yeah that's right that's right i almost wonder if like something where you can kind of augment the camera so that you can get super close to it plus the reflections could be really interesting some macro stuff could be fun that could be really fun yeah Super close I mean, to, it's not the, to the car. To if you go super close to the car, but then really then like amp up the like lighting. Like Cadillac badge or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the badge or like kind of like flying over the 
the hood as the lights reflect off of it could be cool yeah we only have all we have is we have like one light like right like a sky panel or something and then we have 24 astera tubes you know that can be <laughs> uh-huh, any color sure. and then the ceiling so it's a it's an interesting lighting approach but luckily the astera tubes are actually the wilhelm scream of, of music, music videos. videos yeah yeah. yeah, that's for sure. You see more tubes than you do um, this low in the location. That, that, yeah, this location. But I mean, I think they are like a. It's like parkant. What parkants used to be like? They're kind of a light that you're like those um, six lights. You know, the maxi brutes or whatever that are in every music video forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Those are those were great. Yeah. That like of the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. And then there was that Linkin Park video where they built the whole wall of them and it's so good. Do you remember that video? Yeah. It's a Mark Romantic video and it's shot purely in silhouette. I it's think so I good. Remember it. Dude, I'll, I'm we're going to put that in the show notes. It's I rewatched it recently and it is capital G great. <laughs> oh, capital G great. Yeah, we'll we'll see. But anyway, if you are in LA or even if you have a project in LA, you should check out this place, Popsicle Studios, because it's actually a really inexpensive way to light a shoot and have like and it's giant. And when we were there for the scout, there were these people as a four person crew shooting this like dance video and it looked incredible. Okay, well we'll uh we'll post things as things happen maybe you should uh are you allowed to post like screenshots or selfies or anything yeah 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 i can i can i should post some of that stuff i'd love to see better about taking it what a shot list looks like for kind of like a zoom show you know what i'll tell you the thing that's very interesting about this and i know that more corporate shoots have workarounds for this but the thing the number one challenge i found with zoom there's two weird things one you're on all the time like there's not the rhythms of like you know, okay, well, the crew is lighting right now, so like I can check my email real quick and and you know live my life for a quick second or or anything like that. And then two, everything is in public. So w- normally when I just kind of like pull an actor aside or like go sidebar with a producer because you know we've got a problem we need to iron out or whatever, all the normal stuff that a, that a set has to deal with, everything is in front of everyone all the time. Like as soon as your actors are on set, if a producer needs to tell you something or there's a technical issue or there's a sound problem. Well, do you guys have a chat? Everyone hears everything. Like a, no. Well, no, we don't have a chat or anything. Because when I did it, we had the, a producer chat. Slack would be great. And then do you ever turn your camera off? I turn my camera off all or the time. Or mute yourself. Yeah, 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 you yeah, yeah for sure. Break. Yeah. We should remind people that we have a Patreon. Fans of Jim Cummings. He already has raised enough money with his crowdfunding campaign. You should start funneling your money instead to the Just Shoot It podcast Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot It pod is the URL. It's a place where you can give a dollar or two a month if you want to help support this podcast. If you feel like you're getting anything out of it, we've actually gotten some really amazing emails recently from listeners about how we've inspired them to just shoot it, which is weird. It's not weird. It's cool. But I also think it's like we all know this Just Shoot It thing, but maybe it just takes hearing like 200 people talk about how they did it and it worked for other people to do it but it makes us super happy so um if you feel like you're getting stuff out of this podcast join our patreon for 10 bucks even just once we will send you a just shoot it podcast hat i'm also down for the single buck two bucks you know like whatever you can afford i bet you can afford a buck a month i feel like everyone can afford a buck a month but can they afford the time to go to patreon and make an account put in their credit card that's the hard part if you can get past that only takes like five minutes then you can do the buck 
But you know what? You don't have to. We don't need your money. We're very <laughs> successful filmmakers that uh, can do it ourselves. But, you know, it just kind of shows us that you care. And it pays our editors. So, okay. That's all we got. Let's talk to Jim Cummings. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. How have you been, man? You made a movie. I've been good. Yeah, made a movie and then made another movie immediately afterwards. I've been good. It's been, uh, it's been cool. My first studio movie, Wolf of Snow Hollow. It's crazy. I actually think last time you were on, you had only done the Thunder Road short, right? I you hadn't done the correct. feature yet. I think that's correct. Or at that's least it wasn't crazy. out yet. Crazy. Yeah, no, I hadn't because I, I don't think at that point I had I had like even plans to do a feature of Thunder Road. And then I wrote it that like Christmas and then we shot it the following November. So yeah, but last time I was a guest on the podcast, it was yeah, it was still just a short. I was still just a short filmmaker. I think you were doing a show where each episode was like one shot or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. For full screen. We did a, a series called Minutes that then when full screen went under, we got the rights back to. So we edited it into a feature. So like now it's like a pseudo half feature. Where can people watch that now? It's on iTunes and Amazon and wherever fine movies are sold. <laughs> Your voodoos of the world, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. Great. Awesome. Wait, and Thunder Road, because we had Natalie Metzger on who's a producer that works with you at Vanishing Angle. And did you, you crowdfunded part of Thunder Road, the feature? Was that that your big kind of crowdfunding, like five minute crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, we did a Kickstarter campaign for the Thunder Road feature and we raised 34,000 or something like that to turn the short into a feature. And then, uh, and then after that success of that campaign, we were able to like find investors who reached out who like weren't able to back the project and we're like well still i'd want to like give money to be able to help out the film so they bought percentages of the movie and we sold it to the, all around the world and then still own the movie it's neat and for listeners who aren't tracking jim's career quite so closely so basically you had this hit out of sundance a short film called thunder road right you leveraged that into making the feature version right and then since then that movie kind of famously i think people talk a lot about how it was a early example of how self-distribution can work actually right like i think when people talk about self-distribution thunder road is a, a talking point for them pretty frequently partially because it was part of the sundance creative distribution labs right so there's like a write-up out there that you can like learn about how you guys spent your money and where income came from and all of that stuff which is really worth a deep dive into for anybody who's making feature films like we opened our books and like anybody can read about it and it is entirely possible and better for your bank account to 
entirely circumvent the distribution market if you're not getting good offers for your features. And do you have the line item budget? Like we know how much you paid your hair and makeup person, like that type of no, it's granularity? Still broad. It's like how much we spent on the physical production of the movie and then like what we spent on post-production music rights. And then I think it's on there. I think it's in this like neat pie graph kind of thing. And then it's like what we spent for on in digital marketing. And the other crazy thing is we were in a class of three movies that were the creative distribution fellowship year. And uh, t- the other two, you can, you can kind of do an AB test on what was successful. So like by doing deep dives into all of them, you get an idea of the landscape and what works. Any takeaways from that AB test that you can tell us? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one film that hired a consultancy marketing consultancy company, um, for 40 grand and they spent of that 40 grand, $800 in Facebook ads. And oh, when I talk to people about that movie, nobody's heard of it. And yeah, people Wait, have, which movie is it? Is it, it's one of the two. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it. one of the, but it's worth looking into. It's like, it's, it, it's, it's really interesting. All of the write-ups are really interesting. And basically the way that that deal worked was that you guys got a grant essentially from Sundance, but the trade-off was you take our money, you equal, have to, you have yeah, to be equal grants. So we all got $33,000 and then they were going to do this case study about how you do it yourself. And then we ran at that. It's, you know, five or six members of our team at Vanishing Angle, um, Zach Parker, Benjamin Wiesner, Natalie Metzger, Matt Miller, and me. And then the rest of that team that could, uh, the rest of the Vanishing Angle team that could help us whenever we needed. And then we just did everything. We built a trailer. We like reached out to Warp Records to get the Aphex Twin song. We like did everything on our own that would usually cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just to prove that you can do it. And then we were incredibly successful. And then we realized like, that's what everybody does. Like any distribution company is doing the exact same things. They're using these aggregators to get onto iTunes or Amazon just as you would, except they own your movie when you sell it to them for pennies it, it's it's so ridiculous and it's uh, and it's they're charging hopefully. you for the time you're like some smart person at one of those companies is like hold on well we should reach out to apex twin and then they just dig around and find like work their connections find the email and do the same things that you all did i i, I want to go back just a tiny step though you were saying that one of the films hired a marketing firm and they spent 800 dollars on facebook ads and i said whoa the reason we're saying whoa is because i assume you all your marketing budget basically was commensurate to that in some way, but much more of that money was actually in the media spend and not in paying a consultant to run those ads. To talk about doing it, yeah. And that's why it's criminal that those companies still exist right now. And and the fact that they're able to continue to convince filmmakers who don't know any better to sell their property to them before they can make any money on it is just insane and hopefully going away. And, it, and the other crazy thing is like, it's not only an educational problem, it's like very important for all of us to go to film festivals and talk at the open bars about this stuff because kids are getting screwed over and like they don't have to be we could be this like wonderful renaissance of a generation of people who make stuff that is unsanitized and has good trailers and not shitty posters and has retirement funds like that's something that is just absent right now and has been for the last 20 years in independent film yeah i think there's this super common misconception which you've i know you've talked about this many times like we all have but that somebody else might know your mo- how to sell your movie better than you do, and it's 
just like the least true thing there is, you know? Yeah, and they're not going to, they don't give a shit about your movie. And you spent the last three years working on it. You're the person who cares about it the most. And it's crazy to me, like, to see these filmmakers who basically are architects and build a building. And then as soon as the building is ready to rent out to people or to sell to, they give it to somebody else for half of the budget that it costs to make it because they're, they fall into these inadequacy traps that they're not, that they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I remember when I made my first feature, you know, we spent years raising money, finding the strip, getting the life rights, doing all those things, going to New York, shooting the whole thing, doing a first cut, submitting it to Sundance after like two weeks of editing and getting like a, you know, submit it next year, please. <laughs> this is like not a movie yet type of responses. And then I, I went back to my full time job. I was working at Disney and, you know, just kind of had somebody else editing it for a very, very low amount of money. And um, someone told me, they're like, you've worked so, so much. You got to like 90% of releasing your movie. And then before you finish the movie, you you stop working on it. It's just like so ridiculous. Like you all, and that's where people, it's like people lose their gas at the end and they don't realize that that's actually the most important part of yeah, that's getting when, your movie out to the world. That's when the vultures show up. Devil's advocate here, because I think we all agree that certainly it was the right choice for Thunder Road, right? And I think that there may be other, I don't know, maybe there are circumstances where it's the right, it's not the right choice for other films, right? But I, the things that I'm hearing that I think maybe a listener at home that's trying to like unpack, should I do self-distribution or not? You know, we hear things like, oh, you've got a team, right? You've got like a handful of smart people at Vanishing Angle who were like there to, and committed to kind of figure things out, right? Which that's a production company that you made the film with. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think is really tricky is like there there are some hard skills, right? Like Facebook ad targeting, you know, like A-B testing. There's some, some technical nerdy stuff, right, that, that anyone can teach themselves. But it does take, you know, dedication and time the same way all of filmmaking is like that right like there's so many things that you have to teach yourself for filmmaking but i i do understand how some people would be like oh this is not my wheelhouse maybe i should outsource that what would you say to that maybe i should subject myself to poverty maybe i should (laughs) maybe i should spend the next 20 years wishing i still owned that movie that i spent six years of my life working on Right. But nobody is paying you to market your movie, too, when you're doing it yourself. So you do have to kind of think about making a living. Right? That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the other thing is like the majority of the deals that we had for Thunder Road that were offers were half of the budget. And like, that's just we would have to go back to the investors and be in debt. So it's like, well, that well, a lot of times with these filmmakers, they don't have that option. And like the other crazy thing is that. So, Matt, thank you for the devil's advocacy. The other thing is like these distribution companies are using the exact same platforms that you can use to upload your film and have it on iTunes and pitch to Netflix and Amazon. So like, even if you do go with these people and they give you a small minimum guarantee of $35,000, $20,000, sometimes it's zero. Like, for Cresha, they offered zero MG before A24 came on board. That was the offer that we were getting. And like, 
That's crazy to think about now, but that was the best offer at the time. You, you have to just imagine like it's YouTube. You wouldn't pay somebody, you wouldn't work for 10 years on this amazing film to then give it to somebody else for a little bit of money for them to have it on their channel. And it's like, that's how it's going to be. And that's how it is now, but that's how it's going to be even like these pockets of reasons why you can't do a certain job are just going away and getting smaller because of the internet. What would you say about someone who's like, well, I don't, I'm out of capital. I don't have... to even run an ad campaign? I would say, I mean, really, like when you look at other filmmakers, like Mark Duplass went to a bank. Mark Duplass and like, you know, Jeremy Saulnier, all these people went on credit cards and they were like, you know, doing it really irresponsibly, but that was the only way that they knew how to do it before, you know, the Weinsteins come along and buy your movie out of can or whatever. And then the other thing is like, the movie has to be really good. So I don't know, like a lot of people that are making their first feature are doing it as like a grad school kind of thing. And okay, so so basically uh, that article of the case study from Sundance and this short to feature lab written curriculum both give like incredible advice as to how somebody can do it themselves and like, work their film to be able to make it work for for them. Yeah, not everybody's going to have $33,000 from Sundance to be able to do it. But since then, we've quadrupled the budget of the movie. So if you did want to go to the bank, bring in the fucking case study and go, hey, look, this is how I would do it. Loan me this and I'll bring it back in two years, which is like what all everything that I'm doing for the new movie. Like we made... We made Wolf of Snow Hollow with a studio and then immediately went into raising capital to make uh, the beta test on WeFunder. And it's, it's the same thing. It's like, it's just, you, you find the people who are able to give you the money to bring in more money. It's a, it's a, it's like any other industry. It's any other startup. Wait, so just to, just to understand. So Thunder Road, you raised the money yourself, the feature for the feature. Yeah. Wolf of Snow Hollow, Orion, studio paid for it yep they bought it before you shot it yes and then the beta test your third feature is funded by the public on a platform called WeFunder, and it's amazing we raised three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is insane and then we also wait raised... hold on you're leaving out the best detail how quickly did you raise it less than 21 days i think it was like 14 days and then and then in that time period once we hit the cap of the percentage that we were selling of the of the company um, we had they couldn't close the subscription, so like people were still buying shares of the company. It's called being oversubscribed. I didn't know about it until afterwards, but we raised I mean total like over four hundred grand, and then had to apologize to investors who wanted to come aboard because it's like a first come first served thing. And you're not allowed to dilute the no. the shares. I'm assuming. No, of course not. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. crazy. Were you? But was there a moment where you were regretted you didn't? come in at a higher budget? No, because in all the research that we were doing about what these kinds of movies can bring in, we didn't want to go over it. Like we're still having to recoup this for investors. And like since we have these comps of like movies that are at this level that get sold for $1.2 million. So it's like, okay, but we're still being safe. Like if we wanted to self-distribute it um, entirely on our own, we could still recoup at least the 425 that we'd have to return to investors. Right. Also, 350 is a, a nice number for SAG as well. That's like the SAG uh, ultra low budget threshold. So that's another reason that it's a common solid number to hit. Um, but that that's the future. That's the next podcast to the beta test, right? Uh, and, and listeners, actually, if anyone is curious about the things that uh, we're talking about with WeFunder, we did have Johnny Price on the show kind of a while ago now, but we'll, we'll put the, um, the links in the show notes 
Yeah, yeah, so smart. Um, so if you were like, hey, I want other people's money, um, you have to pay it back, but uh, you can learn more about that on a different episode. Yeah, and you know, Matt used WeFunder also. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Pretty, pretty stoked. Um, so yeah, so we dig in on that a little bit more, but I, I'm curious, Jim. So you, you, you did the, the self-distribution thing, right? And now this next movie is a studio movie. How come? Yeah, so I guess long story short, it was like a summer. I was living in Echo Park. I was still trying to get anybody to give us any money to make anything. I, I was still a short filmmaker. And Wait, I thought your life was perfect, Jim. <laughs> Wait, but this is this is pre-Thunder Road, the feature? <laughs> this is pre-Thunder Road, the feature. So in between the feature of Thunder Road and the short film of Thunder Road, I um, pitched nine other single-take short films to two other companies, Topic and Full Screen, and they greenlight greenlit these short films and since we've been able to release them put online and that was basically like a grad school for me to learn how to tell stories over longer periods of time and then uh, we ran a kickstarter campaign and raised the money to make the thunder road feature same team as the short films natalie metzger producing matt miller producing benjamin wiesner producing um and then shot that and then during and that by the time, way just to interrupt i i watched thunder road and i really loved it i don't know if i talked to you since then but i watched it on an airplane which i now think is it went from literally the worst place you can watch a movie to the absolute best place you could watch a movie uh because it's the only place especially now during covid times where you can watch a movie without being interrupted by the internet you know, oh, huh. yeah, at yeah, least, it's true. you know, if you don't pay for the Wi-Fi. So it's like right. when I watched it, I was like so focused on the movie Oh, cool! and your performance. I mean, I don't know it's, if everyone knows, but you are also the have a pretty good role in both Thunder Road and the Wolf of Snow Hollow. Yeah. OK, um, cool. I'm glad so, you dug it. That's great. Yeah, it was so good. And I want to I want to ask about some of the similarities between the movies when we get into the Wolf of Snow Hollow. OK, cool. Um and then uh, all, all that time while I was doing short form content, I was pitching this uh, werewolf idea and New Form Digital came on and greenlit the writing of that. And so I was writing it kind of as a feature, quote unquote, that could then be separated up into episodes if they needed to. They had never really done a feature before. And so they were like, well, we could get web series financing and then you could edit it into a feature if you wanted to and like re-release it or whatever. And that was kind of the best deal that I could get. Yeah, nobody would trust me to make a feature because I had no success in doing feature films. But you um, were, just to understand what you were looking for, was someone to pay you to write the script? Uh, I went out to try and pitch it to get it greenlit, as we did with the short films, and nobody would give us money to actually greenlight us to make it into a feature. And so this was the best deal that we got. Did the script exist? Uh, no, the script did not exist. Okay. But also, I think it's important to you know remind listeners, like at this moment... You know, you're a young filmmaker, you've got a Sundance win under your belt, right? Like, and you've, you've been, you know, hustling for a long time. You've been working on other people's movies and stuff like that. So it's easy to think to yourself, well, I got the grand jury prize for a short at Sundance. Now my, my train has come in. I'm going to get to go make movies, right? Is what you think to yourself and what we're all hoping for, right? Like every, any yeah, person who's ever true. submitted a short to Sundance is like, well, once this one hits then it'll be a little bit easier. Yeah, it was the, the, the worst year I had financially was the year that I won Sundance um, because I won in January and then like had all of these thousands of meetings with Hollywood and went in and, you know, paid for gas to drive back and forth to the West Side and shake hands and stuff. And it was great. I met a lot of people, everybody was super lovely, but it never turned into a dollar. 
it never turned into a single dollar. And so I realized that like the cavalry really isn't coming, even if you have these, you know, dream scenarios of winning Sundance, like it just doesn't exist. And so that became very quick for me. Like, all right, cool. Well, we can make movies in backyards. Some people can't. Uh, Let's just try and do that. Let's like try and drift off of this weird little Sundance short and try and make a try and make more movies. Um, but yeah, you're right, Matt. It's crazy. The fact that like that system doesn't exist anymore for, you know, what it, how it used to be of like people that, that got into Jared Hess and, you know, uh, Damien Chazelle and all these other people who have done well um, because of Sunday Shorts. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, New Form Digital paid me to write this thing. We wrote it and then we went out to different uh, networks or like stu- studios and platforms and they all kind of passed on it and probably did, went in like to physically pitch it twice or something like that and everybody was like uh it's not it's too brutal it's not pc enough why can't he why can't he kill uh men as well and stuff like that and i was like and, and okay. it's it, this is like what year is this, this is like your go 90s 20, cw seed sort of 17 2017 yeah, yeah. yeah. um and yeah. So, so those platforms exist basically and the, and the premise just to give some context to our listeners in case they haven't seen the trailer the premise of the movie is it's about a a small town there's a killer on the loose and they're trying to find out who he is and there are some some hints that there's a wolf involved. probably a werewolf um yeah so it's about this angry white cop and like shouting but i guess so is thunder road thunder road is this like you know heartfelt like police officer character this is a sheriff's department uh uh, this is under sheriff. Um, You're like no one's ever done a Thunder Road, but like sheriff with a werewolf police. Yeah, um, and so we like got turned down, and then I probably spent six or seven months kind of taking notes and doing stuff. And I was like, I was, okay, well, I'm doing other stuff. And then I was doing some other things of writing for TV and doing development there. And then we made the Thunder Road feature, and we got you know we won the grand jury at South by Southwest and got into Cannes and then basically immediately after we won South by Southwest we had people who had turned us down for the script and who hated the script of the werewolf movie were like uh well, how about that werewolf movie what are we doing with that like was that still open so it had nothing to do with the quality of the script it had nothing to do with any of their notes as soon as we won South by Southwest everybody kowtowed everybody was like oh it's great we love it we want to we want to do it and so had nothing to do with the movie um and so we went right, but in their defense up until now you had won an award for one shot of film <laughs> good point uh, yeah we don't point. even know if he can edit That's a um, good point yeah yeah and now you're now you've proven you can make a movie with what how many shots in the thunder road feature like 12 or something <laughs> something like that um if that uh no so then so then we we did well with that and then uh we went into orion pictures sorry and- hold on i t- time it real quick because i want to talk a little bit about the, the your point of like all of a sudden people liking your script again because there is a thing in Hollywood that's really complicated where there are plenty of people out there that I think they start and they're like, I have good taste. I believe in my own taste, right? And they can go to their bosses. Maybe some people are like that. Maybe some people aren't. But they go to their bosses and they say, this is a great screenplay. And their boss says, well, who, who, who's Jim? And he's like, oh, yeah, he, he made a great short at Sundance. And they're like, okay, great. And then they're comparing your screenplay to all of the names that we already recognize. Yeah, and that's why we have to put all those people out of business by making better stuff that is less (laughs) sterile than theirs. And like that entire system, our new movie is about that. The beta test is about Hollywood and the WGA packaging fight. And we play agents in it. It's really grotesque and horrible. But we did two years of research and had 
agents and assistants break their NDAs, talk to us, send us documents, all kinds of crazy shit to to um, research the movie. Um, but all of that is going to collapse because they don't know how to actually make movies or what's actually in the zeitgeist and really good. And because the barriers are being torn down because of the internet and social media, you can get in touch with people on your own. You don't. You can like self package if you want to. Um, that whole thing is going to collapse on itself because it's too expensive and people can make movies in their backyards now. Well, don't you think? Yeah, it seems kind of like agents and managers and those people that put the packages together, they're a lot more like Wall Street traders than they are except like bad creative. It, it's like <laughs> it's like the same wardrobe as Wall Street, except they don't know. They're not very smart. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they think they have good well, taste. Wall Street, I don't know, man. Yeah. But they look at they look at track records and sectors and yeah, industries yeah. and like, did this person no, make they this? They have a, a website they have a subscription to called uh, Entertainment System. It's like IMDb, and they just look at it like the stock market, where it's somebody's IMDb rating rising. And when it comes into their periphery, then they're like, I should reach out to that person and see if they have another script. So it's just this weird derivatives market based on IMDb, and all it's going to take is Cole Needham at IMDb going, you know what? we could create an agency or like we could digitize this right. thing for this whole the whole thing can be run by robots thing to collapse it's crazy anyway i'm on my hobby horse making fun of no Hollywood. no i love it i um, love it um there is some kid at each of those companies though that's like see i told you and that's why you're getting those phone calls though right like all of a sudden now they have this ammunition what phone calls? you were saying before like <laughs> what happened to the werewolf movie right oh yeah like, somebody liked it Got oh no! Shut down. No, 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 no. That's that's all because it comes up in the trades, and it's like, oh, this person's in the thing. Oh, we turn it down. Oh, let's see if we can get it. I don't apologize. Maybe we can get like, it back. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's just yeah, yeah. that. Um, anyway, so that happened. Very again, very nice people. Love the people. Like really wonderful human beings, and they have families, and they're great people. I wish nothing but good things for everybody. Um, and also, they they just have you know it's a strange system that they work inside of, and it's very difficult to to get into it. And that's why we're talking about it. Like the majority of the questions that I get from people is like, how do I get connections? How do I know? How did you meet these people? And it's like it's a, I don't know. It took eleven years and like going to film festivals and making weird shit and you know associate producing a thousand different projects and is miserable. <laughs> you know, it's not a fun, <laughs> glamorous experience. I promise. Um, and, and inside of that non-glamorous experience, um, people at Orion were fantastic. Our executives, John Hageman and Dan Kagan, were both huge champions of Thunder Road and really loved us. And, uh, you know, they were fucking on set carrying bottles of boiling water to, like, pour it into the hot tub scene because the heater wasn't working. Like, these actually people who are producers as a verb and not a noun and like actually helped out and cared about the project and chaperoned us and let us do whatever we wanted basically it was really great these um, are the orion folks you're talking yeah, about yeah the orion folks um and so we made the movie with the same kind of team the same like kind of above the line um we had a new dp natalie kingston came on i was a big fan of hers because of her instagram she comes from new orleans i'm from new orleans so i've like, always kind of been geeking out over each other's stuff for years finally got to work with her and then, was the budget up on par with uh, Thunder Road? It's it's about 10 times the budget of Thunder Road, <laughs> which is crazy. And it's such a weird thing to make a studio movie. The thing that I didn't realize, um, my buddy Ben Wiesner says it best. He says to shoot a studio movie is the equivalent of taking an aircraft carrier to the grocery store. Of like, if you just need to get the quick insert shot, it still takes a thousand moving parts to get it and so often you're just like just give me a fucking camera like i can do this i could do this really quickly and you just can't do it you hear that's why james cameron is a card-carrying member of every union oh is that true Good so for he him, can pick man. he pick up the camera oh what a great but that <laughs> but that is also every success story on just shoot it is a director saying 
I just, wanted, just like, I just wanted to take the shoot camera and shoot it. Yeah. Just, and they wouldn't let yeah. me just roll it. Just somebody please. There's roll a good it. um there's a good line from David Fincher. He says, You don't know what directing is until you've got five shots left to get and the sun is going down and you're only gonna get two. And that happened a lot on this one, just because there's a thousand moving parts. Natalie and I built like Natalie Kingston and I built this uh, shot list, and there were times where it was like we're getting four of the six shots we need, and so I'm re-editing in my head and kind of like racing the sun. The last scene in the movie, um, it looks like there's like fireworks going off, but it's actually the sun coming up, and it's like we literally were chasing against the sunlight to be able to get the footage. It was crazy. What's the location of the movie, The Wolf of Snow Hollow? Where did we you shoot shot it? the uh, Wolf Snow, Snow Hollow? Hollow. Yeah, Snow Hollow. yeah. <laughs> good one, Matt. Uh, <laughs> We shot it in Utah. We shot it in Colville and Camas and Samick, Utah. And you wanted a snowy locale. I'm yeah, assuming. we like, wanted it to be kind of a little Fargo. Yeah, it was like super hot in Echo Park when I was writing it, and I was like, man, it'd be great <laughs> to have a snowball fight with Danny Madden and like the whole team. And then I was stupid enough to drag fifty people out to almost get frostbite at you know yeah, yeah. four degree weather or whatever. It was terrible, but a lot of fun. This is a total random question, but there's like a lot of these beautiful aerials in the movie where you're following cars and just kind of setting yeah. the, the locale, establishing shots, is that because this was a big studio movie, would, is something like getting an aerial shot even different than what you would do on like a Thunder Road type so of movie? So we were very lucky because our our like camera team came up from New Orleans and they had uh, they had a drone. And so like we were able to get a lot of that and fake the kind of uh, focus as if it was like a 4k camera but it was actually just this like dgi drone so it it wasn't that crazy and that was just like on a day off like they went out and shot stuff and i was geeking out over it yeah yeah it's awesome is the weather was the weather tough to work in this oh, now yeah because you can't you can't lay dolly track on ice it's just it doesn't work yeah. and so like you're literally spraying down salt in this parking lot and it's 14 degrees and all of your best friends from college are there and like you're trying to get the shots that you need and kill this woman in the parking lot with a werewolf and have mm-hmm. it not look goofy not like yeah. a guy in a dog costume <laughs> and uh, it's just a thousand different things it's like the there's a scene where um when we introduce uh, robert forrester he is in this blizzard basically at a crime scene and that was a real blizzard and it was like man it'd be cool if it snowed that day and we basically lucked out with whenever we needed snow we had it um but yeah that's incredible there there are shots that we had to comp snow out because it's like when you shoot the coverage on one side there's no snow and then there is snow on the other one so we had to like take it out it's crazy they're like no one would believe there's that much snow you you, so you've never shot in snow before jim i had never shot in snow we shot we shot two fake documentary series at sundance and that was the that was the closest that i could do to shoot in snow but but you're not laying track and things like that that's so funny because like when you said laying dolly track on ice i was like well don't shoot on a lake Oh, right. Of course. It's in the park. It's everywhere. Ice is everywhere. As a California boy, I'm like, it wouldn't be so bad. Oh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible, gnarly, I imagine. It is yeah. gnarly. And it gave me so much respect for anybody who does that, like shooting Lord of the Rings stuff. And it's like actually in snow. And so I was like, oh, my God, it's like so I can't imagine how crazy that must be at that level. Were there circumstances where you were grateful for or glad to have? Oh, you're always grateful. I know. But like, I'm glad to have. The machine glad to have the aircraft carrier are you ever like well like the studio back well we're we're launching a plane off of a boat right now i couldn't do that before or or did it always feel like there's a scrappy way to do this i mean it was a really wonderful thing to get anybody interested in the film like ricky lindholm signed on robert forrester signed on jimmy tatro is in the film like 
And then we got to like fuse some of my favorite actors that Hannah Elder, who I worked with in the Hydrangea short film, like is a good friend from college and like is so talented and would never get a shot like this. And there's like a thousand wonderful people that otherwise might not have gotten us what we needed to make a big studio movie. And Ricky was great. Um, and obviously like the geeky stuff of like being able to shoot on awesome lenses and like get, you know, sky cranes to light whole neighborhoods. And then like there were moments of me like with a shotgun shooting into a neighborhood, like chasing a werewolf. And it's like, I mean, it was such a dream, like this kind of like crazy. Yeah, we got to get rid of those werewolves. Oh, uh, yeah. They're an epidemic in Utah. Uh, what lenses did you shoot on? What's a dream lens from Jim Cummings? We shot on these like repackaged Canon lenses, K. 35s that have this kind of like neat blur to them uh natalie suggested those and and like vintagey kind of yeah it's neat it's like a it's actually like a like they used they took old canon lenses for cinema and then repackaged them into yeah it's so it has this nice little look to them yeah that's cool man that's great a night exterior always feels incredible yeah. Right, like that is that's maybe the oh, actual dude. difference, right? You're like, oh, there's light. There's this you one can moment. See everything. We got to do the geeky stuff of like having this huge light set up and then fake snow. Um, yeah, towards like the end of the movie and some of the outdoor murder stuff. Uh, and they had these enormous fans. We had these guys that were on just doing SFX for or like VFX for the snow. And so it was like all this kind of biodegradable rice paddy uh, that would fake snow. And they had these giant fans and they're firing this like snow out in front of the cars and all the characters running through it. And it was just so much fun to fake it, to be like, it, it felt like this, uh, this real movie making. It was great. Yeah, and Ricky Lindholm is awesome in the movie. I mean, I think a lot of people know her from like Garfunkel and Oates and a lot of comedy stuff. And not that your movie is not a comedy, but her role, she, she you know, delivers this really kind of straight role and it's it's fun it's fun to see her yeah that. she was great man she, we were i was i said that i was like i don't know i don't know if she's right for it and then matt was like i think she could do it really well and i got on the phone with her and she was like no dude i'm a tomboy i'm like a i'm not this cosmopolitan <laughs> like i'm really just like a cowgirl and i could totally do this and then just immediately i was like yeah i think you, yeah you got the part you're great yeah not just not just that that like the sheriffness of it all but just like her you know sometimes you've look at these actors that are really known for comedy and it's hard to know if you can take them seriously when you think you just cut to them in, in a shot and with her you, it, it totally you totally can well i was curious i want to kind of go back a little bit to like the idea generation i think it it's interesting that you pitched the movie without a script and like why you did that and also the idea that when new form came on you wrote the script in a way that it could be split up into 10 minute chunks and i'm curious like a why you didn't write a script to pitch it initially and be like how that like writing something that might be a digital series and or a feature film at the same time how, how well, you I always adapted yeah to it. I always knew it was going to be a feature and like I wrote it like basically before uh, before I was getting paid to do it I was like this is just such a cool movie and the ending is so cool I'm, I have to do it and so like I just started going at it and then yeah so I, I always knew it was going to be a feature and I tried to write it as best as that and then like when we realized that we could go to these platforms that might finance it as a feature then the like web series aspect of it was like ah we'll figure that stuff out later so like that was always kind of um or that was quickly on the back burner rather than the forefront so yeah I don't know I mean like and then and then as soon as we got greenlit they were like yeah act like you're act like you're gonna shoot this movie and it was like okay cool that means we have to get tax credits in New York or in Utah Utah we went out and scouted 
scouted and found this like Colville and like we could shoot so much in Colville was perfect. Um, I was like, okay, we're gonna shoot in Utah. And then I was like, okay, now the script has to be incredible. And so now I have to spend basically all of Christmas break and like Thanksgiving making this thing worthwhile. And because snowmelts, bro, we were fighting snowmelt. We were in March in Utah and there were days where like Danny and Charlie Texter, my production designer and the entire art team, and like everybody was like throwing snow off of these snow piles into the road to make it look like it was snowy. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. There were times where like we'd show up on set and be like, okay, what are we gonna do? We're gonna have to comp in snow. It's like, we don't have David Fincher money. We don't have Girl with Dragon Tattoo money. Like we gotta actually get out with the shovels. Let's go for it. <laughs> are there a lot of visual effects in the movie? Uh, yeah, actually. Our buddy Mike Cisneros is the visual effects artist and he has this incredible yeah. company ex-college humor yeah right? dude. yeah, yeah. Dude. hardcore i haven't i haven't heard mike's name in a while he's the he's best he's amazing dude. yeah he's and so he, good he's done all of our visual effects basically he did uh he did the beta test as well he's which is incredible and uh yeah all of the kind of like werewolf movement all of the like uh some of the fake snow there's like ancillary things we try to shoot everything practically so like the wolf stuff like you know body parts all of that is like all practical and then like we cut it out so there's like moments of like severed heads and it's actually the actor laying on like something and then we greened their neck and then had that so like it still looks very real in the lighting um he did a great job man. and it's so much fun like to work with a proper vfx artist and you get to see what is possible for your next movies it's like oh my god the ceiling is just raising of like what's possible with backyard filmmaking it's great well I've, i think we touched on this a little bit when you talked to us about your short but it's kind of like times 10 in this movie which is you writing and making a movie about subject matter that I'm not sure how, where you're mining it from because both in, in this movie and in Thunder Road, you have a daughter, a very strong connection to your daughter who you're also playing the father and you don't really have a daughter in real life, right? No, I don't. And it seems like kind of a central part of both Thunder Road and of uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, and then also, you know, you're part of law enforcement, which in real life, you're not part of law enforcement, right? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, and then also it's in this setting. You, you grew up in New Orleans and you live in L.A. You're not super familiar with like sheriffing in the snow, being in the Jim, snow. But you are a you werewolf, it. though. So <laughs> at least right. you have that. That's at right. least you have that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But even that, even that, like you're not your background, like your previous work, which I guess I'm mostly familiar with Thunder Road, is kind of very grounded, like kind of real Americana, like not like horror, fantastical beasts type of thing so i guess i'm just wondering a why you you wrote this movie and how you you how you developed the book because watching the movie it seems very every time i see you talking to your daughter about your daughter it seems very real and i i do have a daughter yeah you should try talking to her or <laughs> uh, maybe maybe next year um but uh yep. like yep. i'm curious how you find kind of the right voice to do all this stuff which you don't have personal i don't know man to. i like i i always say that too like i always, like i play a 39 year old in this movie i'm actually 33 and it's like i did you know i did research of like what the like the body is like <laughs> at that age and i like we no, you I did. Didn't. I did, and then we did like the graying of the hair, and I have like a specific walk and kind of like a hunch and um, all, all of that kind of stuff. Like oh, that's just it's very offensive. To I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I I don't know. I think like with writing for the father of a young child, especially a girl, I find that so endearing of like this tough guy who's trying to relate to this this girl who like clearly visually has not wants nothing to do with this guy. And I don't know. I just like I, I have many nieces and like watching them grow up and like how 
how jerky they can be to their parents is so interesting. I don't know. I find that to be just very human and American. And so that's kind of why they both appear in, in those films. And, and then when it comes to like how we write or what we write, I do it all out loud. Like I'll, I mean, obviously it's like a thousand bits of research and talking to police officers and doing ride alongs and finding out how these people's brains work um, and reading a lot and watching YouTube videos and doing any research that y'all would do for a movie. But then I do it all out loud. So like I'll write a scene by playing all the parts and then writing down the best improv and then going back to it when it's in written form. Be like, ah, it sucks. How do I like literally that? just by yourself in a room? Thunder Road, it was that. It was in my buddy PJ's basement and I just listened to a lot of Bruce Springsteen and drank a bunch of Budweiser and wrote it over like three weeks and that was the first draft and then with the wolf of snow hollow it was at this like house in virginia it was like a farmhouse it was really spooky and i was there all by myself and then that became the final draft of that and yeah i don't know it's like a, a very different process of research can i ask a writing. technical question on that yeah sure are you, so you, are you tape recording yourself how, are you transcribing it how are you i i use, you using I use the voice memo app on my iphone and then i have the zoom recorder so like for the beta test podcast um so yeah, I'll write the script. It's a full script. We'll do a line item budget based on the script and kind of do a breakdown. Natalie Metzger will do that. And then while that's happening, I'll record it as a podcast just like this and I'll mix in music and sound design and then send it out to the cast and crew uh, who are in like the producers who are going to listen to it. And so that way everybody can listen to the movie at least, you know, four or five times before they show up on set. So they get the tone of the scenes. And, and you're doing all the voices? Yeah. So I play, yeah, because like if you listen to the Harry Potter audiobooks, like Jim Dale plays Hermione and Hagrid in the same scene, and it doesn't, it doesn't really bump you. It, it sounds. Ridiculous. But do you say then Mike says this? No, 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 no. And Jim then also for like the scene headings, I say um, instead of like interior police station night, I say Jim walks into the police station. Wow. And are these uh, are these perks on your? I haven't released because they're humiliating. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. me playing a nine year old girl. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> that is not a bad idea though, Aura. I would That's love like to hear your nine year old girl voice. It's like a solid. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll know, release crowdfunding. Crowd. Look, okay. it doesn't cost you anything. You've done all the work. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Money for old row. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. You go. there you go. But you're not using those recordings to pitch the movie, right? No. By that time, we usually have something going, and then yeah, we never really have anybody to pitch it to. I think I think like for some of the WeFunder investors, they wanted to read it, and so when we sent the script out, and we would also send the podcast. I was like, well, if you're driving, you know, you can listen to it instead of having to sequester and spend you know an hour and 10 minutes reading this 90 page script how long is the podcast uh it's exactly the length of the movie usually which is very helpful to the producers of like it's it's 91 minutes 90 minutes there's also like a little bit of a learning curve to just understanding the document that is a screenplay you know like what does interior mean right like you understand you mean in reference to investors yeah just like a regular person there are plenty of very smart executives who i don't know if they really understand how to read a screenplay beyond like breaking things down well then also recording it as a podcast like i basically started doing it immediately after um financing fell through on this paparazzi movie that we wanted to make still want to make it um but the the lead investor said i have a really bad actor that lives in my head and that was all I needed to hear. I was like, cool, I'm just going to record it and then just let him know how it's going to sound. And then I've done that ever since because like, it's easy enough to misinterpret a text message. Don't let somebody misinterpret a scene or whatever. Your entire movie. Yeah, yeah. sure. Wow. How long does that take you to do? It takes me about two or three hours to record it. And then it takes me about a day and a half of flight work. I did it in a hotel room in North Carolina last year for the beta test. And it was great. It was like, got to do it in my boxers. That's crazy. And then what, one last question about writing Wolf of Snow Hollow. You said you did it in some 
uh, haunted cabin in Virginia. <laughs> do you go to this cabin to write the screenplay? Is it like, I can't leave here without a screenplay type of deal? That was like a, that, so it's in the same town. There's like a smokehouse that's in the same town as where my family meets for Christmas. So like everybody was coming out. So I just went out two or three weeks early and stayed in this like spooky smokehouse. And, and so it, it wasn't necessarily a product of like, you know, the shining of needing to finish it by the time I'm done. It was more like, oh, we're going to be shooting this thing in March. It has to be fantastic. And now I have to make it fantastic in this tiny room. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Nothing like a deadline, huh, man? Yeah. Tell me about it. (laughs) And so for the beta test, was there a reason you don't just go to Orion and say, hey, I got this other thing lined up? Because the movie was about circum... Like how the film industry could collapse because of the internet. We wanted to like have that be in tandem with how we made the movie and finance the movie because we knew that the, the content of the movie was going to be very radioactive. And so we wanted to show off that it is possible to do it while also showing off that it's possible to do it with the story. It almost feels a little hypocritical or at least like bad yep. marketing, right? Yeah. yeah, and that was the other thing of like, I'm realizing more and more my job is to just kind of do that, is to kind of like tell people that they can do it themselves. And the more that I can do that, I always sleep better at night. Well, speaking of marketing, that does seem to be kind of part of your brand in that your personality and the popularity of your movies kind of goes beyond just the movie itself. And a lot of it being what uh, yeah. you talk. I always I say mean, but it started right Jim Cummings on your is, short film. Jim is my favorite cult leader. I think I, I must've said that at the last episode, right? It's, I'm starting it's like, a Nexium style group in upstate New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, like when Matt introduced me to you, sorry, just going back to the beginning, it was, he was like, yeah, he made this movie Thunder Road. And now that he's like started this online campaign to try to get Bruce Springsteen to give them the rights, like even just in the introduction of who this guy is, he's already talking about not just how good your short is, but that it, it lives beyond the short itself, you know? I mean, that so that's a very special case. Like, we weren't going to be able to put it online without the rights, and they could have sued us. We had no idea where their hearts were with the movie. And so, like, that was actually... I could not get in touch with them, and I was sick of having to go through all these channels. It was, like, six or seven months after the movie came out. And so... Or the movie won at Sundance. And I was like, why can't we just do it? I want to try on the internet. And then I just took a bet, and I was like, I'm just going to try and do this thing. And then everybody shared it, and then we got the rights in a week or something. And then, yeah, I mean, that that was its own kind of crazy thing. But I know what you mean of like, it is a strange thing where I'm making stuff that is like fun movies and like everybody is incredibly supportive of us. And I don't think we're doing anything that special. It's the same kind of stupid dick and fart jokes that we've been making on film since college. Um, right, but you're never like, you, you can't just tweet like, oh boy, I hate movies. You know, like I'm feeling bad about movies today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like there is a there. There's a Jim Cummings brand, especially on Twitter, of like, hey, you can make your movie in your backyard, right? Sure. Like, how many times have you said backyard movies on this podcast, right? Like, you you've got a mission statement, right? Well, yeah, because so fucking long I've been discouraged from being able to do it. Like, I can't. That that hurdle is in your mind that you can't do it. Of like, and and it's worse in other countries. America, because there's no art grants, because there's no real art funds, like nobody realizes that they can do it. And so I end up accidentally becoming the person that's doing it in the backyard, and it's working out for me very luckily. I do that because I see so many people fucking struggling in Tampa because there's no film community 
community and they feel like they're inadequate because they shoot movies on an iPhone. And it's like some of the best stuff that I've seen from young filmmakers is coming out of the middle of nowhere. And it's interesting because it's coming out of the middle of nowhere. Like we could be on the cusp of this weird renaissance of people being able to circumvent the system by using the technology that's available at Best Buy now. And we should be doing that because there's a lot of corruption otherwise. I do wonder if for Matt and me, I mean, obviously we're no Jimmy C, that's me, but you know, we've been doing this podcast for a little while. Like I, I, so I watched the trailer of Wolf of Snow Hollow yesterday and I saw some of the comments were like, I love, I love Jim. I love this director. I'm so excited to see this movie. Like how many movies trailers have you seen where someone's like, I'm going to watch this because I love the director and it's not like David Fincher, Christopher Nolan, you know? Right. That's true. That, yeah. There's not that many other. Like, Jim- like most people react to the trailer right. before they react to who made yeah, yeah. it, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's really cool. That's fucking crazy. Like I that's really crazy to me. And like that's that's great. And I think like it's it's probably because I had this weird start of like making smaller stuff and then the gradual rise and people were like, "All right, cool. I'm, I'm betting on this this weird team." And yeah, that that and is sharing cool. about it online. Yeah. Right? And that's the other thing. And also like demystifying it. Like I remember seeing Trey Schultz make Kresha and like all the BTS is like him in flip flops and like a bathrobe looking like a schlub. And like that inspired me and like knowing the guy a little bit. And like, I was like, all right, cool. After seeing Kresha at South by that was the, like, it was five or six months that I made the Thunder Road short film. It was like, I can't, when I'm seeing Spielberg on the set of Bridge of Spies, like I could never be that. I will never be Greenland. And because I'm not that, I'm not good enough. But then like in seeing Trey do it, I was like, oh, I can, I can be better than that. This guy is just like an idiot. I think just to kind of the other part of that whole thing is that you're, not just a writer director but you're also starring in the movies so i think that there's something about being able to put a face to a name and like be like oh those are jim's movies in a way that i think is different than it's also this weird kind of like humiliation porn that i put myself through and so people are like okay because like like with jackie chan it's the same thing he's writing directing acting choreo like choreographing the fights and stuff like that and so like you like Jackie because you know when he's like running across coals, literally in his movies, it's like, okay, he's doing that to himself, which is this weird perversion. You should have a blooper reel of people laughing at your expense at the end of your movies instead of Jackie hurting himself. You know, he's always like, you know, right. the 30 right. times that he doesn't get to do the the stunt right. You should do that for yourself. Okay, cool. Right. Just- <laughs> okay, cool. The next one. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, the American When I Jackie forget Jean. my lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fuck up everything. <laughs> Poor co-stars that have to work with me, yeah. Are you the lead in uh, beta test too? You're also one of the leads. I right? co-star. Yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm the main guy in the movie. Yeah. Like you have a, I think you have a really unique tone, right? It's kind of your movies are satire and they're funny, but they're played super straight mm-hmm. and they're very emotional at the same time. There's some and they're ugly kind of like a spiraling involved. train wreck. Yeah. And so it seems like when you write the movie, and like clearly you just told us you literally record the how it sounds before you shoot it. And, and that's what you did, I think, for your first short, too, right? You were rehearsing it in your car as you were driving to work every day. It makes sense that as the writer-director, you also want to be the actor because you are, like, really kind of showing people exactly what the tone is through your own performance, right? From writing to editing, right? Every step of the way. I'm wondering if now that you've done it three times, do you love the the performance part of it? Or do you think you could show someone... 
your work and they will get the tone and you can have a different like lead actor yeah. pick it up. What's, what's, so, what's so incredible was working with Jimmy Tatro. He was an actor where he would come on a set and we would talk about the scenes and we rehearse and do everything, but he would give me what I needed immediately. There were times where it was like the first take and I was like, I don't think we need to, let's save, let's keep going. Like that was incredible. Let's keep moving. And like, and he just had a complete understanding of the character. He's a really lovely and funny guy. I know everybody knows that, but like as a performer, really understood the space and got how he was supposed to be and eye line and everything. And so that was really freeing to be like, oh yeah, that's right. There are people who like, who get it. And it, like, you don't have to describe the punchline and why it's funny to get the punchline and they're able to make it better than even I had imagined in the podcast version. Um, That's interesting though, because both Jimmy and uh, Ricky Lindholm both have YouTube backgrounds, right? Comedy. They started making their own things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that, that probably is a leg up of like knowing how to set up the camera and like being much more comfortable in small budget stuff. He's interesting because, you know, for those that don't recognize the name, he was a big YouTube star, but also was the lead of American Vandal and has worked a lot since then, I think, in more traditional stuff. And he does have a little bit of that Jim Cummings tone to him where he's just acting like such an idiot, but also 100% believable and 100% sympathetic, you know? And it's really hard. He's really to endearing. Pull that up. He he comes across like Brad Pitt on on film. He's like a really endearing guy where you want to you want to give him a hug and like he's and he's also still very funny. Yeah, I loved I love working with him. So many cast members are really incredible. But to answer your question, I think so. I would love to branch out and be able to work with people who are equally committed and 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 get the jokes and get the drama. And I feel like because we never had any money and because we've always been making movies with our buddies, it's just been easier and save time in rehearsal for me to record it and kind of give a base layer of what I'm thinking for the thing before anybody, before we show up on set, basically. Do you let the actors hear your line, the way you've said their lines in the podcast? Yeah, of course. Do you find that they usually are doing something similar or, or that they're building on it? Uh, most of the time thing? they're building on it. Yeah. So it's like, but just to get the cadence of the scene, like with our movies is a very complicated tone of like what's funny and what isn't. And so because we need to save time in rehearsal, we never have any time and save time on set, we never have any time to get the idea of the punchline across of the joke. Um, it kind of has to be done out loud. And I think that the line reading rule is just so ridiculous where it's like, it was created as a preservation of the ego of the actor and it separates the actors from the rest of the team instead of it being this- By line reading rule, you mean a, a direct, that it's considered taboo for a director to tell the actor how to say that? Or even suggest out loud, like, so if somebody's getting a note wrong in a choir, it might be rude for the choir director to do it out loud out of their vocal cords, but it's totally not rude to play the note on the piano and say, hey, you're getting it wrong. And so like, that's kind of all we're doing. And I, I know that that's like a weird cult that was built in the era of stage direction um, and theater performances. And I know you can catch a lot of hell because actors actually you know find that very important and actors are very important. They don't want to feel like they're not being treated with proper respect on set. But a fucking joke can be delivered the right way and it can be delivered a thousand wrong ways. And so English and language are so complex, it's, it shouldn't be rude to go, actually, hold a minute here. It's actually like this. Or this is how I would do it. And then, okay, give me a couple of those. All right. You, you, 
say excuse me like that like that (laughs) yeah it's a weird thing but like that exactly that so like when you take a word in english and you put a different inflection on it um it changes the entire meaning of the word sometimes and so it's very important to get it right and how are you judging that when you're acting in the scene with these people we do it a thousand times especially with the long takes there is a long take in wolf of snow hollow at a crime scene and it is a full 360 with a steadicam and we had to nail every one of those moments of like somebody one of the characters says uh, I'm, I'm shouting across the parking lot and I go I can't hear you, you gotta raise your voice and this idiot in the sheriff's department says uh, they think it's a wolf and he shouts and then I turn around to see the news van rolling up the window and the joke is how long they wait before it goes and the window goes up and it's a punchline of like they now know who killed this woman and it's like the stress of that but if any of that was off it would be a less functioning joke like a, a joke is set up and payoff, and so is performance. And like, it's very easy to get that wrong. Right. And coverage is kind of what lets you fix that in post. But when you're doing it in one take, you don't have And that. And when you don't have coverage, when you don't have a lot of time to do that. Yeah. Then you have to do it like this. Did you guys hear that? Like when um, David Fincher was shooting House of Cards, he would have Aaron Sorkin read the script to him in the tempo that he wanted it to be. Social network. Played. Social network. Oh, so oh, it was social network. Yeah. Oh, okay, but but then they would use After Effects to split screen the actors to match the exact pacing that Aaron Sorkin set or intended. We do that a lot. Yeah, I mean, like that's not. It, it's a crazy thing that you can slow down parts of the frame, and if it's a two shot, you can totally get away with it. Like there's a thousand things that we do like that. Like, yeah, the technology is getting where you can do performance enhancement very easily. I use that term for different things: performance enhancement. It's for a different podcast. Ah, we'll talk about that next time on <laughs> Boner Time. That, <laughs> that brings us to our sponsor. Uh, 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 well, how can people watch uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow? Is it out when this episode comes out? Uh, it will be out tomorrow. So if you are really on, it'll be out the, the Friday after this episode comes out. So. so it comes out on October 9th digitally around the world, uh, as well as a few choice theaters, about 100 theaters in the United States. So do that safely. And then there's a bunch of drive uh, and then there's a couple other big events around the world. It's screening at Citrus Film Festival and Beyond Fest and Fantastic Fest. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Congrats, man. Yeah, we're super stoked. It's Wait, what are, they, are they doing drive-ins or are they doing theater events? For um, I think for Alamo Drafthouse, it should be outdoors. And then Beyond Fest, uh, they're doing a double a double feature. It's uh, The Burbs and then Wolf of Snow Hollow. And so that'll be... On the 8th of October. That's cool. And would you, if you're a person that's kind of scared of horror films, do you think you should avoid the movie? I think there's only a few really scary moments. And then the rest of the movie is just a kind of funny, weird deep dive into Utah and this guy's mind. So I think it's okay. Yeah. My wife is reticent about horror films and she watched it with me last night. She was, she made it. She, oh, she made it through? She didn't oh, get good. too queasy. Okay, that's cool. good. That's good. Good to know. Well, but, congrats, but, Jim. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to come back when the beta test is out so we can talk about how you tore the Hollywood system down. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do that, uh, can you hang out and endorse with us? Yeah, sure. Unpaid endorsements. So I'll go first. We were talking off the mic about the results of the pandemic, and uh, I never bought the fancy Kerrygold expensive butter until I got it delivered through Whole Foods, and I feel like I've been wasting my life not eating Kerrygold butter. So I know that sounds crazy, but like the fancy butter is worth it, you guys. Kerrygold. So you're saying... 
for COVID, you switched from like Albertsons and Trader yeah, Joe's to I, Whole Foods. I, if I'm in the grocery store, I just kind of look at like, oh, this one looks fine. I'll get the, I know I would get the Albertsons <laughs> brand one, right? Yeah, I like, just squeeze the butter, whichever one's the softest. <laughs> yeah. That's the one you buy. Yeah, what's the difference? It's butter. It's fat. It's fine. And then when we started getting our groceries delivered more, Whole Foods doesn't have the i guess they probably have a 365 butter or whatever but for whatever reason oh you know what it is they would be like hey we're out of the cheap stuff are you okay with this substitution and so we've had a decent number of grocery upgrades that's like you know it's a pandemic treat yourself a little bit but Kerrygold, gold i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with it for my whole life that's it it's the best stuff Kerrygold. gold so that's my endorsement. There is. Yeah. Jim, what you got, buddy? I am going to endorse a uh, publishing house called Melville House Publishing. Uh, they are a London and New York-based book publishers, and they have collections of novellas that are fantastic. It's all books uh, from different countries, from different authors that I never would have read otherwise, but they're very small and they fit into my back pocket, and I can dive into uh, Russian romanticism and uh, these wonderful stories uh, from New England from the turn of the century and things like that. Um, and it's it's great. It's like going into a new world every time I open a book, and they come in these beautiful, different, ornate wonderful textured covers and they're all different colors and really wonderful so i would i would uh, in an unpaid endorsement endorse melville house cool it's been a while since i've uh, my endorsement has been like a way of thinking as opposed to just like a product or something but i've been thinking a lot about this recently i just had a shoot and i was explaining to many many different people that i was working with for the first time like why i really liked working with my cinematographer and one of the reasons is that we are like constantly arguing about everything and debating about things. And I guess my endorsement or my kind of advice that I've kind of thought this for a long time, but I just kind of put it into words recently is that you should be wary of crew members of overly agreeable crew members, because I think it usually means they haven't read the script, which is a bad sign for a commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even like a short or a digital series or anything, but like, to me, like my favorite crew members are when you say like, you know, so let's set up for this scene or like, what do you think about this? Or we should, let's get master primes and try to shoot on these two lenses. Like if they're like, cool, love that idea. Uh, to me, that's way worse than if they say like, oh, but, but why? I was kind of picturing it like this, you know? And I've just really been thinking a lot about like how this is such a collaborative medium, at least the way I work and that people having like a bad plan that I disagree with is better to me than having no plan and like opinions are better than uh, acquiescence. So just if you hire, if, if you're finding that you're hiring the same people over and over because you love that they just do whatever you tell them to do, I think you're probably hiring the wrong people. So weird, a weird endorsement, but it's just something I've been thinking a lot about lately. What, what do you do when all of your ideas are great and perfect? That's a problem we don't have, Matt. I, I know, I know y- <laughs> you have that. Yeah, it's an endless problem. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> But I agree with you, Lauren. There's, there's yeah, a, yeah. I was talking to a director buddy of mine, and they said that they were halfway through an edit of a big movie, and he and the editor only agreed on stuff, and the movie wasn't getting any better. And I was like, that's the most dangerous thing in the world. It's like, cool, we need to bring in somebody who disagrees with us to make this movie better. Yeah, it's the difference between hiring a creative or an artist and hiring a technician. And like, right. in this medium, I think if you want to make good stuff, you don't want to hire just technicians. Yeah, or you're limited by how good you are right yeah 
Awesome. Well, Jim, this was great. Thanks so much, buddy. Where can listeners find out more about you and your movies? I guess uh, they can find out on Twitter. I'm sharing a lot of like when any news comes out about our new stuff on there. And then uh, I love the behind the scenes stuff, by the way. Like the, I think it was from the beta test, like that spinning camera uh, ring. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Like, that was the first post, shot. Post of the more of that stuff. That was the first shot that we got of production. And it was a nightmare. And it was a full 360 in a bar room. And then it was the most complicated technical shot of the movie. And it was the first thing we shot. Yeah, I'll post more stuff. We're actually doing a behind-the-scenes documentary of the beta test about how we made it from, like, ideation to distribution. So that'll be available in the next couple of months. Well, you can find out all the stuff uh, that we talked about at JustShootItPod.com across all social media. We are at JustShootItPod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at SmiteyPileg on Twitter. Also, you can email us at JustShootItPod at gmail.com. And then I am Jimmy C. That's me uh, on Twitter and Instagram. There we go. Yeah. And also, you're part of Vanishing Angle, right? You're like one of the the members. Check out Vanishing Angle. Thank you, everyone. This episode is edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. Our social media person is Derek Aiello and the music that you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar and we'll catch you next time thanks everyone ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.